My great grandfather, he said it best. He said, life is on the wire and everything else is just waiting. For our family, it's in the literal sense. Life is on the wire. That is where we feel alive. The Wallenders are wire walkers. Is this it? This is all you do professionally today? I was going to go off to college to become a pediatrician, mm -hmm. but I always had this passion of walking a wire. Somebody is born in a Wallenda family. How soon am I getting on the wire? As soon as you can stand up. In fact, before <laughs> my children could even stand up, I was holding them up walking on a wire two feet off the ground. Did your mom ever wire walk with being pregnant with you or no? She did, six months pregnant, and she was still walking the wire with me. What you go through, that balancing pole weighs 45 pounds. It's not just stable, it's moving the entire time. So the amount of forearm strength is fairly overwhelming. We talk about Chicago, Times Square, Niagara Falls, Venice Volcano. Nick, your margin for error is worse than golf. How do you stay sane on that road? If you fall, it's over. I think our family has just turned that fear into respect. I mean, I'll spend six to eight hours a day on the wire often, five, six days a week. We're risking our life with our passions. It's truly a battle, a battle of the mind leading up to this. But once I get onto that wire, all that goes away. You guys call it the pyramid walk and there was an accident. How were you able to recover from that single event that happened to your family? That was when my worst nightmare became a reality. It got to the point where I told my wife and I said, I'm done. I'm not getting back on the wire ever again. I'm done. You know, in a time where a lot of people are dealing with anxiety and panic attack and trying to manage your fear and all this imagination that you lose control over and, you know, you think about what, what if this happens and what if that happens and what if this happens? My guest today may help you with that because my guest today is Nick Wallanda. Let me tell you what Nick Wallanda does. Uh, he's a seven generation wire walker. These are folks that walk on wire since 1780s. They've been doing this. He holds 17 various Guinness Book of World Records. Let me kind of give you an idea what these crazy records are. He's the first man ever to walk across Niagara Falls. Yes, Niag I've been there before. It's crazy wind. He walked across Niagara Falls. He walked across Chicago, Times Square, and recently in March 4th of 2020, he walked across a volcano. With that being said, Nick, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thanks for having me on. First of all, you know, uh, I was telling you earlier, when I spoke to Robert Kennedy, one of the things I was very curious about was the lineage in his family and what they talked about at night and what were the questions and how did they get people to get mentally so strong. And in one interview, I think in the book, Total Recall, Arnold Schwarzenegger talks about the fact he met the Kennedys and he asked me, he says, so, hey, John, tell me, what's your favorite color? And his answer was, we like the color red. He says, no, but what's your color? He says, no, we like red. He says, the Kennedys seemed so united when I was around them. When I read and study your family, I mean, how does a family get folks to believe for seven generations that we're all going to be wire walkers? So if we can go back to where that tradition, the values and principles, who is the original founder that started this tradition? Take us from there, and then we'll go to all the different experiences that you've had. Absolutely. So my family history dates back to the 1780s. So well over 200 years, my family has been wire walking. My great grandfather is the one that really made our family famous. He brought our family from Germany, the originally Bohemia in the 1780s into Germany and brought our family over to the United States from Germany in 1928. In fact, he was actually performing and they were headlining on a show in Havana, Cuba, and they were making headlines around the world for doing these amazing pyramids on the wire. And John Ringling, the 
founder of Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, heard that he needed to see this amazing wire troupe. So he made his way over to Cuba on a ship, got off, went to see the show. And that evening, my, my grandparents were great grandparents were getting ready to get on the wire to perform. And as they got ready to perform, the show owner in Cuba came up to them and said, this evening, we're giving you the night off. And my family sort of looked at themselves and scratched their heads and said, this doesn't add up. We're headliners. We're featured here. The audience, this is a full house to see us. Why are you giving us the night off? Well, the reason he was giving the night off was because John Ringling was in the audience and he knew he was going to lose this amazing performance group to the United States and Ringling Brothers Circus. But John Ringling, being an astute businessman, snuck in the next day, saw my family perform and signed him to come over to the United States to perform on Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. So they made their way over to the United States, 1928. The, the net, the safety net that they had used was lost in shipping. And they thought, this is our debut in the U.S. There's no way we can avoid this. We've just got to go on without a safety net. And uh, the story is told that they were set up so high in Madison Square Garden for that opening night that John Ringling came into the arena hours before the show and said, there's absolutely no way I'm going to let them perform that high and made them lower the rigging some. But the story goes that they got on the wire and they did this amazing performance of heart-stopping feats. And immediately afterwards, the audience went crazy and they were whistling and screaming and foot stomping. But my family was scared to death because whistling and screaming and foot stomping was the same as being booed off the stage back in that time in Europe. So they thought they were horrible. They were horrendous. Mm. They were failures and, and that they were going to get kicked out of the country. But little did they realize the ringmaster ran to the door and called them back to the arena where they received a 15-minute standing ovation for their first performance in the, in the old garden. Uh, so that's sort of the legacy that I inherited. But my great-grandfather, uh, you know, he said it best. He said, life is on the wire and everything else is just waiting. And for, I think, everybody in the world, especially with this virus we're facing, we're all on a wire. But for our family, it's in the literal sense. Life is on the wire. That is where we feel alive. My mom was six months pregnant and still walking the wire. That's crazy. I started walking a wire when I was 18 months old. It is truly life to us. It is not a, a decision. It is not a choice. It is, it is truly who we are. Like the Kennedys, like Red, the Wallenders are wire walkers. Now, now but, but that part, like when you, so if I'm, if I'm in your house and I had a camera, because your grandfather died in 78 at the age of 73 with the uh, horrific event that, by the way, before even doing the interview with you, I've seen that video God knows how many times in Puerto Rico when that event took place. Yes. And he's doing a walk and, and I won't show the video, but I'm sure the viewers are going to see it. I don't want to show while you and I are talking. So he, he dies in 78 when he's doing this stunt, walking across two waterfront hotels. I think it's like a, not a big distance that he went across, but he yeah, did it, it and he falls and hits the car and uh, uh, dead on arrival to the hospital, you're born a year later. So you never really had a chance to spend time with him because I think you're a 79 baby and he passed away in 78. That's but correct. What, what mindsets from your grandfather and your family was passed down to you? Like what stories have you heard about how he was at the dinner table? What are the family talking about? They talked about he, that he was just an amazing man of inspiration. He was a very driven individual. A lot of his traits were passed on to me. It's interesting. There are 17 of us that still walk the wire to this day, uh, but I have a different drive than the rest. You've heard of Nick Walenda, and, and I would say the reason is, is because of that drive. I've had the drive to walk across the Grand Canyon, for instance. I've had the drive to continue to, to push. You know, Walking across Niagara Falls took changing two laws in two countries that were over 100 years old. Yep. That was just to get permission to do the walk. 
So that process takes a lot of tenacity and, and a lot of grit. And uh, that is something that he certainly passed on to me. I, my, my parents say it's so interesting how within a nine month span of his death, I was born and there are so many similarities and I never met him. But I will tell you that growing up, I was always told of these stories on how he was always willing to push the limits, how he was always willing to step out of his comfort zone, how he would he would return to the wire. 1962, fatal accident, two family members killed, one paralyzed in Detroit, Michigan. My great grandfather, not only was he injured severely, but he snuck out of the hospital against the doctor's orders just to get back on the wire the following day because he had that drive. And there are so many parallels between his life and mine. And, and by the way, crazy data is he was born, I think, January 21st, and you're born January 24th. You guys are three days apart. That's correct. I, I, know, you're, I know you're a Christian man, and you, do, you probably don't even look at the data matching, all that other stuff. But for me, my entire life, I ask people about birthdays. And it's amazing how you guys have a similar personality, and your birthday is three days apart. So, you know, when I see the video, I've seen it multiple times. I have to tell you, I, I can't help myself, but my stomach gets... It gets uncomfortable. Yeah. We had uh, one of our guys just walked in here before doing the interview, and he watched uh, a couple of the videos, and he has vertigo, and he lost it right there. He's like, I can't even watch this. Like, you have to step away. How often, yeah. like, when's the last time you saw the video of you, your grandfather in Puerto Rico, and when people want to play it for you, do you look away, or are you comfortable yeah. seeing that one? I would tell you that that is a video that I've seen hundreds of times. In fact, I had a series on the Discovery Channel, and it was really the science and engineering behind what we do. And in that series, I had the honor of recreating that walk that he fell and lost his life from. And there, again, many parallels. In fact, he was, he was on the sidewalk and was interviewed by a reporter moments before he went up to the wire. I was interviewed by that exact same reporter on that same wow. sidewalk moments before I went up on the wire. So, so many parallels. But during that series, we did a bunch of research, and we had uh, a bunch bunch of geriatric specialist doctors watch that video in slow motion over and over again. And what we've always were told is that the reality of why he lost his life was because that wire was rigged improperly. And, and we know that for sure. In fact, the way it was stabilized was improper rather than that wire being rock solid, which what he was, was what he was accustomed to. It actually moved quite a bit because of those stabilizer ropes that were coming off of it. And, uh, he was trained and prepared for any stable wire, but the reality was at 73 years old, your heart isn't prepared to take the amount of adrenaline and the adrenaline rush that he would have gotten from an unstable wire. And they say that he didn't notice that it was unstable. In fact, in fact, my father was supposed to be there to rig it as well as my uncle, and they both had previous engagements. Actually, my dad had to stay home because my mom had just had a miscarriage and he was there with her. So he had a couple other guys on his crew set it up and they, they took a couple shortcuts. And in the end, what that did was it caused his adrenaline to go up to the point where we believe he went into cardiac arrest, went down to the wire, which is what we're all trained to do. And we'll talk about the accident in 2017 where I did just that. He went down to the wire to hold on. And at that point in cardiac cardiac arrest, he couldn't hold on. And that's in the end what caused him to lose his life. It wasn't the wind. It wasn't a lack of balance. It was actually, we believe it was an unstable wire. And then of course, the fact that he couldn't take that amount of blood pressure into his heart. So, so let me ask you, uh, do you do this professionally yourself or do you do anything else? Is this it? This is all you do professionally today? 
So for most of my career, this is what I've done professionally. I will tell you that there was a lot of back and forth early on in my in in my younger years. In fact, my great grandfather in his book that he wrote in the 70s, he said, in the circus world, and the circus world is my background, one day you eat the chicken and the next day you eat the feathers. And that was very true for me growing up. We went through a lot of setbacks. My mom wrote a book in the mid to late 80s called The Last of the Walendas because she didn't think there was a future in the industry. Uh, so there was a time where I worked in a restaurant where my parents really pushed me off and wanted me to go to college and do something different. I was accepted at a university and I was going to go off to college to become a pediatrician was sort of my thoughts. It was another dream of mine, mm -hmm. but I always had this passion of walking a wire. So to answer your question, it is my main source of income. I do run other businesses uh, locally in Florida where I live. Got it. I know you're in Tallahassee uh, yourself and I got a couple offices in Tallahassee myself as well. I know the area is a very different kind of a Florida than a South Beach, Florida, but uh you know, so you run other businesses out of the 17, you said we have 17 family members today who still uh, wire walk. How many of them do it for the purpose of entertainment? Uh, how many of them do it as a purpose of a showman? Like I'm going up there and I'm doing a show and other people are watching it. What's the breakdown between the 17? Yeah, I would tell you that all 17 do it with the intent and the the aspirations of being able to support their family and, and as a business. However, because the circus world has changed so much and that is their primary source of income, they have had to take other on other occupations meanwhile. So all of them though, including my mother, we just actually did a walk uh, between two skyscrapers in Tampa, Tampa Bay at the Hard Rock Casino where my mom who's 67 years old got on a wire, walked out to the middle, 150 feet up, no safety devices, Sat down, I stepped over her and we walked into opposite ends. So it, it's similar to, to telling Tiger Woods to put down the golf club because he's retired from the PGA or the PGA senior tour at one point. He's still going to golf. It's his passion. It's what he loves doing. In fact, that's what defines Tiger Woods in a lot of senses. That's the same with wire walking and for our family. It is very hard to put down the balancing pole, if you will, and move on because we're so passionate about it. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's obviously felt. So how soon? How early on? If I'm in the if I'm a Walanda, by the way, can you pronounce the name? My accent is hurting me sure. from pronouncing it properly. Okay. It's Walenda. 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 Yes, sir. Walenda. Okay, I'm gonna get it right. Uh, uh, excuse my Assyrian and Persian That's accent okay. here. Walenda. So if I'm in your family, if I'm born in your family, if somebody is born in a Walenda family, how soon am I getting on the wire? As soon as you can stand up. In fact, before my children could even stand up, I was holding them up, walking on a wire two feet off the ground. It is, it's amazing. My mom tells the story of when I was a child and the first time that she grabbed my hand and, and helped me onto the wire. And it was in our backyard. To this day, in my backyard, I have 15 acres. I have a wire that's 700 feet long. I have one that's 50 feet long, all different heights. And, and just for training, of course, and, and preparing for these events that I take on. But from a young age, I saw my parents doing this and how passionate they were about it and how much they enjoyed it. And I wanted to be a part of it. So I would reach up to them just like a, a child who sees another kid on a swing set. He goes up or he sees his father with a hammer driving a nail. He grabs that hammer. Well, for my family, that was wire walking. So my mom said from, from about 18 months old, the first time she put me on the wire, she said it was fascinating. The fact that I knew exactly how to put my feet on the wire as though it was in my DNA, it was in my nature. Uh, she said it was mind boggling. She said that the first time I got on a bicycle on a wire, there was no assistance whatsoever. I got on that bicycle and I rode from one side to the other. Mind you, low, you know, about two feet off the ground, but no help whatsoever. And I rode across. 
what was awesome is I have a nephew and uh, he's about he's about nine now but when he was four years old he came to visit me and he was in my backyard and he wanted to get on the wire and I grabbed his hand and I get goosebumps telling you this story but it was the same exact thing I put him on the wire and it was as though it was second nature he it was in his blood he knew how to place his feet and has that drive in fact at this point he's nine years old and he is an awesome wire walker and we're working on maybe breaking a world record or allowing him to break a world record obviously considering all safety issues with minors etc but he'll be able to set on his own world record at nine years old because he's so good on the wire oh cool did your mom ever wire walk with being pregnant with you or no she did six months pregnant and she was still walking the wire with me so honestly long longer than i've been or in a backyard like is it show or no no so so circus women as a whole are extremely fit and and my mom didn't even show that she was pregnant barely showed at six months she barely had a bump in her belly so she walked the wire performing in front of an audience until she was six months pregnant with me respect man that's just unbelievable by the way how much of it is when you were saying you know hey you you see what your parents are doing if your dad hits a hammer you want to go hit the hammer how much of it is i want to do what dad is doing how much of it is Hey, Nick, get on that wire. How much of it is uh, pushing you to get on that wire? You know, in the circus industry as a whole, it was very much, you better get on that wire and practice. This is how you're going to pay your bills. My mom is the Walenda. My dad married into it at 18. He's got an amazing family, six siblings that are all engineers. Two of them are, in fact, head engineers at NASA. That's just how brilliant his family is. So he has a different mindset than the history of my family and the way I was raised. So my dad was opposite. My dad, if anything, pushed me away from it and said, don't get into this, man. It's addictive. You'll fall in love with it, but you got to be able to support a family and we're struggling to do so. So it was actually just the opposite with me is they didn't want me to do it, yet it it was my passion. It was what I loved doing, and I, I can't imagine not doing it. Did you catch yourself wanting to know more about your grandpa constantly? How was he like this? What did he do here? Yeah. Did you want to watch all the videos, read all the articles, learn everything about the guy? Absolutely. I, and I don't really know why. I mean, obviously, he's been my inspiration. I've looked up to him. He is a, an incredible, was an incredible role model. Uh, but there is a fascination that I have with him. And, and people often ask me, you know, 10 quick questions. And who would you want to meet if you could meet anyone in the world? It would be my great grandfather. I mean, there is there is uh, there would be no one more uh, incredible, at least for me, opportunity in the world than to spend time with my great grandfather and tell stories. And truly, everything I do is really to shine light on him. He's the one who paved the road. Yeah to get to where I am. And that's why I walk over these crazy places, always trying to honor and respect him. That's what's so uh, uh, beautiful about the way you talk about him, man. It's, you know, you've been able to do stuff that he was never able to do uh, during your time. But every time it's so much about honoring him, lifting him up and lifting God up. And the way you go about doing it, everybody is rooting for you to do it because indirectly you're doing it for you and you're doing it for your grandpa. It's a beautiful thing to see, but let's talk about some of the stuff that you've been able to do. I mean, we talk about Chicago, Times Square, you know, uh, uh, Niagara Falls. I know it started up with Niagara Falls in June 15 of 2012. Then it's Chicago. Then it's Times Square. Then it's Volcano. Which one was the first official big one you did in your eyes where you say, this is when people said, this guy's going to be doing stuff like his grandpa did and doing big stuff in his life. Which one was it for you? I would tell you it was in 2000, uh, let's see, it was 2008. 
and I had an opportunity to uh, break a world record live on the Today Show. And it's one that's not not very, very much talked about, but I rode a bicycle on a wire 135 feet above the streets of Newark, New Jersey, for a distance of about 200 feet, which set two world records. In fact, the record prior to that was about 40 feet. So I tripled that record uh, both ways and actually almost five times as far as length goes. So um, that was the one that sort of launched my career in a sense. However, I would tell you that after that walk, I got off on the other side and, and Matt Lauer said, what are you going to do next, Nick? And I said, I want to be the first person to walk across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope. And within six weeks, I signed a contract with NBC to be the first person to walk across the Grand Canyon. And you look at my timeline, it doesn't match up. And the reason being was about six months into that process, all the engineering was done, the site was, was prepped, uh, the cable was purchased, we were ready to go. NBC fired the head of specials that contracted me to do that. And when that happened, my special went out the door with him. So we got a call and said, hey, sorry, Nick, uh, this ain't happening. We're, they told my managers, we're, we're going to take this off of our slate. And I remember the wind being knocked out of my sails because here I thought that this is what our family needed in order to be able to actually support, stop eating the feathers and start eating chicken full time. Yep. And uh, so I thought this was the big break. And, and again, six months into that, literally three months from that special happening live, it got pulled out from under me. And I remember just going back and thinking, and, and I often think to my great grandfather, like, what would he do here? I just feel like giving up. I don't feel like carrying on. And, and I always look to him for inspiration. And, and just like he got back on the wire after that accident in 1962, the following day, uh, he continued on against all odds and all these tragedies. I thought, you know what, my great grandfather would keep pushing and I'm not going to give up, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of change my direction a little bit. And I knew that Niagara Falls, A, there was a lot more, uh, there's a lot more business in that area that would be able to help fund this because it was going to cost, it ended up costing over a million dollars to rig that wire to do this walk. And uh, through that process, I realized I was going to have to change two laws, one in the United States over 100 years old and one in Canada, in order to get permission. And I, I, I felt like if I can get the government behind this and through that process, we can get a bunch of momentum behind us, then a, a network will sign on and we can get a bunch of sponsors and endorsements that will actually cover the cost. And in fact, that's what happened. After a year of trying to get permission and going through senators, Governor Cuomo signed legislation giving me an exemption to that 100-year-old law to walk across Niagara Falls. Then I still had to go to Canada. And that was another process that was a nightmare, but eventually got through that. And through that process, I got a tweet from, from Good Morning America and ABC. And she said, would you be willing to come on our show? And I said, of course. So I flew to New York City, was on the show. And she said, will you stay after your interview? Uh, the president of, of news division here at ABC would like to speak with you. And we sat down and they ended up agreeing to cover the costs. But what people don't realize was that in the end, that walk over Niagara Falls cost me 30,000, over $30,000, 30 to $40,000 out of my own pocket when I didn't have it in order to do that walk. But I knew it was an investment that would take me into my future. In fact, we, we had a GoFundMe that helped cover some of those costs prior to back when that was a brand new thing prior to me taking that walk because the network didn't cover all the costs. So, so what was a 30 to $40,000 cost for you? Uh, it was just an addition to the rigging. There was extra stuff that was mandated on me. In fact, about two weeks before that walk, I was walking over the Inner Harbor in Baltimore. Another parallel of my great-grandfather, he walked over that Inner Harbor back in the 60s, and I went back to recreate it. But again, I always try to honor him and do something unique. So I decided I was going to walk from the land to a crane that was on a barge. So as I was walking, that wire was moving quite a bit because, of course, in that harbor, there's there's waves, smaller waves, but enough movement on a barge that that, that 
that crane was moving. About three quarters of the way up, there was about 30,000 people in attendance live and Good Morning America was covering it live. And I made my way up three quarters of the way and one of my best friends was in a basket at the top ready to take my balancing pole. And I looked at him and I said, hey, Chris, do you want to see 30,000 people scream? And he goes, yeah, because he knew exactly what I was going to do, somebody I grew up with. And I acted like I was going to fall. And I slipped. I, I did a fake slip on the wire. And 30,001 people screamed because it wasn't just the 30,000 in attendance, but the president of ABC was watching. And what happened was before I got on the wire, my manager had a, a, a text from the president of ABC News in all caps saying, what was that? And that turned into a tailspin of them saying, we're not going to air this. So here I am again. This is two weeks from walking across Niagara Falls. ABC says we're pulling the plug on this and they're funding it. Uh, long story short, what it came down to was we negotiated with them and they said, we'll allow him to do it. But if he does, he has to wear a tether. So my biggest fear walking over Niagara Falls was that tether because I'd never worn one in my entire career until, until that day live on ABC. And my concern was, is this going to trip me up? Uh, my great grandfather always taught that safeties are a false sense of security. And the reason he said that was he had a, an older brother that bounced, fell into a net, bounced out and was killed. So even though you have a safety device, it makes your mind think, oh, everything's fine. I'll be okay. I got a safety device. But the reality is it isn't. And if you can become, if you become complacent because you have a net, that's when you, you can be at grave danger. That, that's, that's, but, but, but I mean, a big part of our audience are entrepreneurs and business people. A big part of what you're saying right now has to do with folks who start a business and they have an op, plan B, plan, you know, C option, all this other stuff, safety. And uh, uh, you hear all these great stories of, of people not having it. And they're the ones that end up building a story that the world yeah. ends up reading about. It. And here's one of them being you. So, so now you end up doing Niagara Falls. One of the stats that I saw was you were walking over 600 gallons per second, roaring over the Horseshoe Falls. Uh, history tells us many have fallen in there. Very few come out. I mean, the, the, the wraith is it's a very small percentage of people that survive if they fall in there. If you fall, it's over. We're not going to have this interview while you're going through Niagara Falls, for you, 13 million people are watching on ABC, okay? We're not talking 30,001, you know, 30,001 people every time. 13 million people are watching you go through this. How are you in your own mind staying sane and calm to know that you can get through this? How do you do that part? Because, you know, you watch basketball. You watch somebody shoot a three-pointer and it hits the backboard, goes off the rim, goes to the top, drops down like the Kawhi Leonard shot last year with the Toronto Raptors, and eventually goes in. They beat the Philadelphia 76ers, right? You can get lucky with a three-pointer. You can get lucky with a Hail Mary, throw it up there. The margin forever is not this big. Like, you can be three feet off, six feet off. Receiver's going to catch it. Nick, your margin for error is worse yeah. than golf. How do you stay sane on that rope? Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. There is very little margin for error and, and it is life and death. But, you know, I think it, it really, it, it dates back to my, it goes back to my family history. This is life to me. So I'm able to stay calm in stressful situations in life as a whole. Generally, if I see a car accident, I'm the first to get out. If that car's on fire, I'll walk right up to that car and pull someone out. In fact, I've done that before. I am just calm. Uh, we'll talk about the accident in 17 eventually. I stay cool and calm in very stressful situations. And I can attribute that to the way I was raised. To me, being on that wire, there's something peaceful about it. And the reason is all the troubles of the world that we're dealing with, whether it be political or who knows what's going on in our minds. It could be family. It could be finances. That's all gone. 
You know, when I was younger and worried about paying my bills, I would get on that wire and I can promise you there was no thoughts of paying my bills at that point. It was just, this is freedom. This is peaceful. And again, I, I think it's because I've done it so long. It is often very calming, often leading up to a walk. I'll walk up to the edge of that, that uh, volcano uh, months before and I will look down and my heart will start racing. When I walk up to the edge of that volcano the night that I'm going to walk across and there's a wire there, my heart rate slows down. Wow. Why is that? Is the, is the trust, I said rope earlier on wire. This is a wire that you're walking across most of these platforms. What, what makes you come about the seeing the wire? What, what, what makes you come about it? Because I've been, I've, I've known and been trained and it's been fed into my mind over and over again that that wire is a safety net. That as long as that wire is there, I can grab onto it and hold on. I also know that I have an incredible team surrounding me and that that wire is rigged safely. So the rocks might crumble under my feet as I'm standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. However, that wire is not coming down. So if I'm standing on that wire, I'm more safe than I am on that rock on the edge because that rock could give way again. But I have full confidence in my team and the engineers, my father, my uncle, who oversee all my rigging in the fact that that wire is stable and safe. Anybody in your family who walks wires afraid of heights? No, there aren't. Not that I have met uh, that are actually afraid of heights. Look, you're born with two fears, they say. The fear of falling, which is obviously related to the fear of heights, and the fear of loud noises. I think our family has just turned that fear into respect. I talk about it in this latest book, but basically I take what you would consider fear. You walk up to a poisonous snake, rather than being fearful and turn around and scream and run, the best thing you can do is stay calm and respect that snake and slowly back away. And that's the same with us on that wire. When I get up to the edge, I respect the fact that it's dangerous, but that's why I prepare so strongly leading that walk. That's why I go through the rigorous training that I do that is specifically detailed and laid out like a map before every one of my special events and big walks. Now, uh, uh, Nick, what is the biggest difference for you between Niagara Falls, between Chicago, Times Square, and the volcano? You know, they're all very similar. I try not to compare any of them. Uh, and they were all st stressful leading up to it one way or another. In fact, it seems like before every event, there's something that goes wrong that just plays with my mind. Up until the walk, it's a mind game. It is a battle. Three days before that walk, it is a mental battle. My, my, my mind is trying to talk me out of doing this. And, uh, and I have to continually counter that negative with positive. So when my mind says, that volcano is going to erupt, I can say, well, we've done studies and the odds of that, the chances of that happening are slim to none. I can say that, you know, well, the winds are going to be strong. Well, you've walked in 90 mile an hour winds. So it's, it's truly a battle, a battle of the mind leading up to this. But once I get onto that wire moments before, all that goes away. The stress goes away. It, it's, it's sort of a surreal moment where I get into this zone. In fact, we have set up a precedent that if there's lightning, if there's a reason why I shouldn't get on that wire, my dad literally has to step in and physically stop me from getting on that wire because I get in such a mental state that I'm going to walk across it, whether it be a hailstorm, a lightning storm, treacherous thunderstorm, heavy winds, it doesn't matter. I have made my mind up. And once I'm determined to do something and I've proven it on and off the wire, I'm going to fulfill that, that determination and that drive. The, the volcano, when you went through the volcano, some of the stuff I saw you talking about, it was a thousand feet. Lava was 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, one inch wire. This is in Nicaragua, March 4, 2020. You know, you went there a day, you know, before and there was no wire and you kind of looking on, you, you could tell you were a little bit nervous about it before, before the wire was being up. When you went up there, are you feeling the smoke? Are you feeling like, what do you feel when you're going through it? 
Yeah. So my training for the volcano specifically was a training because I knew I'd have to wear an oxygen mask and that oxygen mask uh, could deprive, I'm sorry, a gas mask. And that gas mask could deprive my oxygen levels down to about uh, 75% most likely. So in training, I trained with an oxygen deprivation mask that would pull out about 75%. I was breathing only 30% oxygen while training. Uh, I train with heavy sandbags and weights on. I train on a wire that is shorter. However, I'll walk it about six or seven times. In fact, that walk was 1800 feet across. And I walked that I walked over a mile on a cable in training every single day for months leading up to that. I walked that entire length forward and backwards. I walked it with my eyes closed, doing everything I could walked it in 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 heat suits. Uh, so that I was prepared for the heat. So that again, when I get there, I can look at it and go, yeah, it might be 180 degrees or 150 degrees where I'm walking at times with drafts of wind, but I know it's going to pass. And I know I can withstand that. I know I can walk five times further. I know I can walk with much less oxygen. I know I can walk this without being able to see. And all of that is the reason why I'm able to, once I get to that cable, stay calm. Physically, is there a exercise that's the most important exercise for you to do outside of walking on a rope or a wire? Meaning, is it legs? Is it shoulders? Because when you're holding this, you need a little bit of shoulders. You need a little bit of biceps, forearms. What keeps you in balance? Is it core? What's the main uh, uh, exercise or body part you guys focus on uh, working out on? So it's, it's very much core and arm strength. Okay. In fact, I have, I have an awesome trainer and just recently he's from the Marines. He had one of his leg, legs amputated in fact, and he is a Marine and, and he, I decided I was going to teach him how to walk the wire and he's extremely fit. And I remember putting him on the wire and giving him that balancing pole. And he was just blown away because he'd never picked it up. He trained me for these events, but never really spent time on the wire. And he picked it up. My family does all of the training on the wire. And then we have a trainer to do, do the training off the wire. And he picked it up and he was like, Oh my gosh, this is insane. I had no idea what you go through. That balancing pole weighs 45 pounds. It's not just stable. It's moving the entire time. So the amount of forearm strength is fairly overwhelming. And, and again, he was just blown away, but very much core, very much forearm. And then I do a lot of, a lot of cardio training. So what he started doing with me, which was unique right before our Times Square walk was he would have me run, a, run half a mile and then get on the cable and walk half a mile while I was still out of breath. He would have me stop. In fact, part of my training is to do push-ups on the wire. Uh, I can lay down and sit up on the wire. I can stand up. I can do squats on the wire. So a lot of my training was is done on the wire. Even though you would think, how do you do a push up on the wire? How do you how do you do a squat on the wire? Again, that's all part of training. And all of that, knowing that, hey, I can walk this length doing squats and push ups. I can sure as heck do it without doing squats and push ups. We've spent a lot of time talking about this stuff. But your book, Facing Fear, that just came out September 15, 2020. And by the way, you wrote it with a guy that I'm very familiar with. We met multiple times years ago. I think he's written. 11 books. That's a New York, New York, New York time bestseller, Don Yeager. He's a great writer. He's done a lot of sports stories and Thomas Nelson. I'm very familiar with them out of Tennessee. Today, people are afraid. There's a lot of people that are uh, 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 concerned. They have anxiety. They have panic. You know, they, they tend to worry with this pandemic, election, protesting, riots, fires. There's so much going on where, you know, the world is overwhelmed a little bit right now. I mean, we, we haven't gone through this stuff and it's all hitting at the same time. Is there a formula your family or yourself follows for you to not get overwhelmed or control your anxiety or panic? Like when you are about to have a panic attack or anxiety or get nervous or afraid, what are you telling yourself? What's the formula? Where do you go to? I'm curious because I think that's something a lot of people can pick up from, including myself, at any phase you're at. 
Yeah, I think it, it very much comes down to the power of our minds and, and really the simplicity, the fact that we are in control of our thoughts. We're in control of our minds. Our minds aren't in control of us. And we can decide where we're going to allow our mind to go. And, and, and we, can, we can stop our mind when it starts to go down that negative path. I am very, very, and my family as a whole are very careful on what we allow into our minds, what we listen to, what we watch on TV, uh, the news that we listen to. In fact, I choose to read all of my news because then I can sort of control at least. Uh, because you're right. If we were to just dwell on what's going on in our world today, it's overwhelming for anyone. I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care if you've been a Walenda for 200 years or not. It is overwhelming. Uh, so my great grandfather, again, always taught us in the way that we think and, and, and pass it on from generation to generation, where you allow your mind to go. We have to be in control, control of that. And, 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 you know, I look, I equate it to simple things like an argument with my wife. If, if I get in an argument with my wife, immediately my mind wants to, I get really mad. I'm pissed off. My mind wants to go to places like, 20 years of arguments with my wife rather than saying, no, I've had 20 amazing years with my wife. I've had a few arguments along the way. Let's focus on the good things, not the bad things. And early on in my life, I was the first to roll my eyes at this stuff saying, "There, this is goofy. You can't control your thoughts. Your mind goes wherever it's going to go and that's it. Well, with maturity and wisdom, I've learned that that's not true at all. We truly can control our thoughts and where we go. And, and there, is, there is so much power in, in visualization, visualizing, visualizing ourselves, whether it be me walking across a volcano, me speaking in front of a crowd. I would tell you, interestingly enough, one of my, one of my great fears was public speaking. It's something that I do a lot now. And this is the most ironic thing about it is I would be nervous speaking in front of a crowd, but put me on a wire in front of a crowd, which I started doing. Uh, these, these corporations started renting out arenas and I'll walk a wire 150 feet up and I'll motivate you from that wire for half an hour, 45 minutes. I am way more calm leading up to getting on that wire and speaking to them than walking on the stage and speaking with them. There is something about the psyche of a calm and peacefulness about being on that wire. There's, it is sort of my, again, it's a safety net as crazy as that sounds. And it's just the opposite of that. That is my safe haven. So again, I encourage people to, 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 to think, uh, not overthink things and control where you allow your mind to go. And, and again, if we could capture that, I believe we could fulfill the greatest dreams that we have, whether it be climbing Mount Everest, whether it be leaving that job that you're miserable and fears holding you back from, from actually pursuing the dreams and passions that you have, whatever that might be, our minds are powerful tools. So, so that's powerful what you just said right there. But uh, how, how many total hours would you say you've spent on a wire or rope? Wow. I know I've walked thousands of miles on a wire. Certainly. I would tell you that I have probably spent uh, at least a quarter of my life, maybe a little bit less than that, a lot. I mean, I'll spend six to eight hours a day on the wire often, five, six days a week. You got to be so, kidding me. No, I'm, I'm on the wire a lot. Wait, uh, let me, we, let me get this straight. Did you say four to six hours a day, six days a week on the wire? Yeah. Six to eight hours a day often. And, and sometimes seven days a week. Uh, it is, it is something that we, it's just like anything, the more practice, the better you're going to get at it. And, and with us, the reality is it's life and death. So it is even more important that we spend that much time on the wire that, that we're that familiar with it, that, you know, what I've learned is when I become complacent is when it becomes very, very dangerous. And, and those times where I go, okay, I don't need to practice today. I don't need to rehearse. And then I'll get up on a wire between two skyscrapers in Pittsburgh. And all of a sudden it'll start pouring down rain and I'll go, oh my gosh, I wish I would have rehearsed more. I wish I would have been more prepared for this. I just did the math, by the way. If you spend six hours a day on the wire, on average, times six days a week, 
times 52 weeks in a year times 25 years because you and I are the same age. We're three months apart. You're 41. If you do that for 25-year average, it's 47,000 hours on the wire. Does that sound about right? That's that's a lot of hours, but it does. I have spent a lot of my life on a wire. <laughs> but just tells you, you know, whatever you, you, you hear the 10,000-hour uh, rule, you've taken a 10,000-hour rule on a whole, uh, a whole different level. Wh when, when are you planning on stopping this whole thing? Like, when are you going to stop walking on wires? I know you're you're the, the, the man that gave you a big source of your, you know, inspiration and the level of ambition that you have, the fire that you have, uh, uh, your grandpa, Carl, 73 years old was him. Is, is there a time that you have where you say, I think I'm going to, you know, stop at such and such age. You even think about that. Yeah, I do think about it. And I think about it because of my great grandfather losing his life. And, and I even think about it when my mom at 67 is getting on the wire going, mom, you shouldn't be doing this. And my mom will argue with me. In fact, she told me specifically, she pulled me to the side one day and she said, Nick, I need to talk to you about something. And I, I thought I was in trouble. This was only about a year ago. And I was like, what, what mom, what happened? Did I say something? Did I do something wrong? And she said, I want to make this clear on my 70th birthday. I want to do a walk with you. And, uh, and it was, she was serious. And, and again, I thought I was in trouble. I'm like, yes, mom. Okay. We'll figure it out. But that stresses me out. Just knowing that my mom still wants to walk the wire at 70. But like I said earlier, tell Michael Jordan to put the basketball down because he exactly. retires from the NBA. He's not going to do it. He still has a full court. I'm sure in every house that he owns. Cause that's, that's his passion. It's what he loves doing. That's what inspires and motivates him. So for us, that's a, that's a challenge. You know, don't walk the wire. Michael Jordan's not risking his life shooting a basketball. We're risking our life with our passion. Yeah. So I've tried to prepare myself. Hopefully I've done a good job of maybe 55 is what I've said, uh, that I would, I would retire from the wire. I don't, I hope I'll be able to accomplish that. I don't know that I'll be able to because I'm so passionate about it. I will tell you that no matter what, I will always have a wire in my, in my backyard. Uh, and I'll always practice. My mom's still on the wire five days a week training. And, uh, for again, she does one walk every several years, maybe with me, but the reality is she still is on the wire every day. Cause it's, it's, it's her passion. I think the over under is you're going to go past 55. So what is the next big one you want to do? So if you've done volcano, you've done times square, Chicago, Niagara falls, what's, what's the next one you're looking at? It, it is a challenge when you get to that point in your career where you have very little, if any, competition and you're only pushing yourself and driving yourself to go further and go higher and to find locations. Um, so at this point, to be honest with you, a lot of them are about parallels. How, how do I parallel the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls? And I'm working on a walk in the UK is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. Again, my great grandfather did a walk over there by the, the London bridge and I want to do something bigger, bolder, broader, but all to, to pay respect and honor him. Uh, and then the other one that gets a lot of people excited is I'm, I'm working on something and a dream of mine to do a stunt. It won't be wire walking, but in outer, outer space, actually. Uh, I Okay, let me get this straight. Out, outer space, what? Wire walk in outer space? No, it wouldn't be a wire walk. There's there's a few other things that I'm working on that are stunt related uh, that, of course, no one in the world has ever done uh, that would be pretty awesome and, and make some incredible live TV. And, and truly, what we do and what we've done for 200 years is inspire people that nothing's impossible. And, and that's why I continue to do what I do. That is, that is truly what drives me at this point is to inspire. When somebody says, wow, when people come up to me after I get off of a wire the size of a nickel, 300 feet above between skyscrapers, and I've got teenagers coming up to me and touching me just to see if I'm real, that's when I know I'm inspiring people. And that is really my passion and my dream. No question you're doing that. So, you know, in sports, you in boxing, you 
see uh, George Foreman get knocked out by Muhammad Ali. Nobody thought it was going to happen. He went into depression a couple of years. Uh, you saw Sugar Ray Leonard go against Roberto Duran, and you know he beat him psychologically and physically. He was in depression for a couple of years. You see it happening in sports where somebody goes to the finals or World Series or Super Bowl, and it's a very tra- you know traumatic loss, public loss. Sometimes they don't get over it. What did the 2017 event do to you when your family was doing the, uh, uh, the it, you guys call it the pyramid walk, I believe with eight of you, you can highlight what that means. And there was an accident and where, you know, uh, most people fell except for three of you, I believe that yeah. didn't fall and you were able to hold on. What did that do to you? And how were you able to recover from that single event that happened to your family? Yeah, so we were training for about six weeks here in in Florida in my backyard for that eight person pyramid, and uh, everything went pretty good. We were we were doing well. We started two feet, went up ten feet, went up fifteen feet, and then decided we were going to go up to the height to break that world record, which was for this four layer eight person pyramid, twenty eight feet above the ground. And uh, basically, what it is is four people standing on the wire, two people on their shoulders, and then a person on their shoulders, and then a person stacked on a fourth layer on top of that. So. The top person being my aunt was about 50 feet above the ground at the apex of that pyramid. And as we made our way out in a rehearsal at full height, it was the second time we were doing it up at full height. The next day we were premiering it for Guinness and in front of a live audience. That was when my worst nightmare became a reality. We were walking our way out on the wire and uh, not sure what happened, lost our balance. My Five of my family members and friends fell to the ground. And as you mentioned, I caught the wire. My cousin caught the wire. And one other gentleman stayed standing, but the other five hit the ground. Statistics say 30% chance of living from a fall of that height or greater without any safety devices. My sister not only fell, but she fell on her head. She broke every bone in her face. Uh, She has 73 screws and plates in her face alone at this point. Uh, Was in a coma, internal bleeding, a lot of broken bones. My aunt, a couple other guys hurt pretty bad. And I remember sitting in the hospital the day after that accident and in the waiting room, not knowing whether people were going to be able to walk anymore, not knowing whether my sister was going to live. We knew the other four were, were going to live, but they weren't out of the woods yet. And I remember sitting there and my dad looking at me and saying, hey, you're supposed to speak at Amelie Arena in Tampa to a, to a corporation tomorrow. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, dad, I don't even know. I, I, I mean, never walked the wire again. And, and it wasn't fear at that point in any way. It was, it was the fact that I didn't want to disrespect those that had fallen. And I thought, you know, are they, how are they going to look at me? I, I certainly had survivor's guilt at that point. I felt horrible that I wasn't yeah. in the hospital, that I couldn't trade places with any one of them. And my dad looked at me and he said, well, if you're going to do it, I'll be there for you. He said, I'll make sure your rigging is safe and I'll make sure it goes off without a hitch. I've got your back. And, and, and I get goosebumps when I say that because here his baby girl, his only daughter, may not live, but he supports his son to the point where rather than being bitter, he says, I'm there for you. I got your back. And I remember, I remember going, you know what? That thinking back to my great grandfather, the legacy, him, him going back to the wire the day after that accident and saying, you're right. This is what our family does. I said, but I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to go visit the other four that are in the hospital and talk to the other two, the other two that stayed and caught the wire. Couldn't talk to my sister at that point and get their blessing. And I did that. I made the rounds through the hospital and said, what is your opinion? And every one of them looked at me and said, you have to do it. 
get back on the wire. So I did. I got back on the wire the next day. I performed, in fact, for the next five weeks straight with only four days off. All the while, my sister's still in the hospital and, and in the process of recovering at that point. And after that five weeks, I took six weeks off. And then we headed to New York City where I was headlining on a new show where we were going to perform the seven-person pyramid. So very similar to that pyramid. In, in fact, uh, peripherally the same as, as that eight-person pyramid for me. So uh, we started training and I started visualizing that that pyramid falling in front of me on the wire. And after about a week of that, I started to physically tremble on the wire, something I'd never experienced in my life. In fact, the emotion of fear I didn't even think existed in my DNA, certainly for walking the wire. And I remember going through that process and, and after a week of that, going to my wife and saying, do you, do you know what's going on in the pyramid? Are you watching this? And she goes, yeah. I said, well, who's shaking? And, and the reason I asked that is as the leader of that pyramid for, for years, I've done it thousands of times. I would, there's always somebody who has jitters early on. And when they shake, you feel them. You're all connected together. And she looked at it and she said, what do you mean? I was like, who's shaking? She goes, it's you. And I thought, there's no way it can't be me. I, I was still denying the fact that I was dealing with fear at that point. And uh, I said, uh, well, I'm going to get back on the wire and see if I can work through this. A couple days later, one of my guys in my troop who's been with me my whole life grabs me, literally grabs me after rehearsal and shakes me. And he goes, what the hell is wrong with you? I was like, what do you mean? What's wrong with me? Thinking that they didn't know what was going on. They can't see me. They're all in front of me or on top. And he says, you're shaking like crazy. What is going on with you? This isn't the Nick Walenda that we've all looked up to that, that drives us to greatness. This is not the guy who we've respected. And at that point, what happened was... A, I had to admit that I was fearful, but at that point I was dealing with shame. The, the fact that here I am, the, the, you know, the greatest wire walker of our generation, I'm fearless and I'm not fearless. And people are realizing this and people are recognizing this. And at that point, I had to actually back up further and deal with the, the pride that led to shame, the pride that I was too good to be fearful, deal with the shame and then dig down to the root of what fear actually was. And then, then work through that fear. It got to the point where I told my wife one evening, I said, I'm done. I'm not getting back on the wire ever again. I'm done. And I remember that conversation like it was right now. And my wife looked at me. Now, mind you, my wife comes from eight generations of circus on one side, seven of the, uh, of the other. She has two Guinness World Records herself. She's an amazing aerialist and daredevil. And, and, and she supports me because of that. And that's how she can understand my passion for doing these things. And she looked at me and she said, for 200 years, your family have lived by the words, never give up. The show must go on. That's the way you've lived. You do what you do all the time. You're inspiring people that nothing's impossible and you're going to give up because of something in your head. She goes, nah, that's not you. You're not going to give up. And I remember sitting back feeling defeated, literally sitting back in the couch and tears rolling down my face like I'm defeated. I changed two laws in two countries. I walked across some of the craziest places in the world without safety devices, risking my life. And this small four letter word fear is, is going to ruin the rest of my career and, and possibly my life. And I, I started going down this route of depression. And as I started going down that, that path, which many people do, I remember um, just sitting there and I always reflect on my great grandfather and his book and his stories that I've been told and the videos I've watched and the, the tapes that I've listened to. And I thought, you know what, this isn't what my family does. I'm not going to go down this path. And my mind was deep. It was in the gutter at that point. I was in the valley. And I remember thinking, you know what? 
everything my great grandfather did, he was able to overcome and he was able to prove that the impossible was possible. And even though this feels impossible, I'm going to overcome it. And when I overcome it, I'm going to write about it. I'm going to tell the story and I'm going to use this. So other people that are dealing with fear don't have to go so down deep into that valley like I did and don't have to go into that deep depression. And that's when I set off on this journey of, of, of going. And really it was, it was about stepping out and going, okay, how were you raised? What were you taught? And, and what are you doing differently now? And, and it really came down to the power of the mind and where I allowed my mind to go and controlling those thoughts and, and drowning out that negativity and continually focus on positive. Rather than thinking you're going to fall while you're holding this pyramid, I would think you've held it more than anyone in the world successfully. Thousands of times you've held this pyramid. One accident and you're going to focus on the one, not the thousands. And I started just telling myself that and working through this process. And, and again, with the help of psychologists and psychiatrists and spending time with people that really could teach me to, to relearn who I was and relearn how I do and have done what I do. You know, the question I have for you is obviously one, I can tell affirmations is a big part of your life. It sounds like affirmations is a big part of your life. When you were walking across Chicago, at the end, you said, in the middle of it, you said, so blessed for these opportunities. And then at the end, you said, God is so good and praise you, God. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, you're, you're talking and this is a form of affirmation. Absolutely. So blessed for these opportunities while you're walking on the wire. God is so good. Who says that <laughs> while they're doing like, imagine somebody's playing basketball saying, God, thank you so much for allowing me to make the last shot or, you know, shoot the last shot, or thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to build a business and raise millions of dollars and, you know, try to take it to the next level. How much of a role does faith play in your life? How much of it is training? How much of it is mental and emotional toughness? What would you say? I would say it is is probably split into thirds evenly. Got it. I mean, my training is important. The mental aspect is is part of the the training is the mental training as well. The physical training is what lines up the mental training and preparation. And then my faith plays a key role in just who I am. And, and the truth is, I am so grateful. I I see it as surreal. I have been able to do things again. Niagara Falls the process of getting permission. No one in the world will likely ever do that again. hundred years ago, there was a guy named Charles Blondin who walked, and people say over Niagara Falls, but he walked a third of a mile down from the falls, uh, just over the river. He never walked over the precipice of Niagara Falls. So I know that I'm in positions where no one in the world will ever be. These natural wonders are breathtaking that I'm able to walk over. And I do see it as an amazing opportunity. A, this is me living my dream. You know, it, it is like somebody uh, who wants to play in the NFL, who gets drafted into the NFL and saying, thank you, God, this has been my dream my entire life. And my dream is coming true. Every time I get on that wire, that's the way I see it. This is my dream. And, and especially in these bigger walks, which are the televised ones, there's a lot of them where, I, of course, I'm very thankful, but it's not as meaningful as what the process of changing two laws in two countries and, and going through all of that to get permission and then finally achieving that dream, which was seemingly impossible, not because of the, the defeat itself, because of the permitting process of it. Uh, again, I am extremely grateful for those opportunities and I, and I don't take it lightly. And I consider myself extremely blessed. I look at my family. I look at our, our industry as a whole. One of my passions and dreams is to revitalize the circus. And I believe that everything comes in full circle. And that is something that I've challenged myself with is how do we reinvent the circus? It is one of the oldest forms, the more the purest forms of family entertainment that inspires people. People clearly love it. When I walked over the Grand Canyon, 23 million people watched live in the US alone, breaking rating records on the biggest network in the world. 
people love what we do in the circus. But the reality is I don't think that they quite understand it. And now I've had the platform and opportunity to present it to them in a whole new spotlight with the dream of getting them to come to the circus and see this amazing stuff. So I have set that goal on myself. The last chapter I talk about it, it's, it's, it's about that fear of feathers. My great grandfather said in the circus, one day you eat the chicken, the next day you eat the feathers. Well, I've had that fear and I've had that fear to, to take on this challenge of reinventing the circus, but it is something that I'm passionate about. And I'm hoping once we, in fact, I was well on the pathway when we got hit with this virus and actually turned a little bit because I'm all about reinventing the wheel and uh, ended up creating this awesome uh, drive-in thrill show that we've been touring with, where I've called all of my Daredevil friends, over 27 Guinness World Records held by just the performers on this show that's touring. And normally, we're never able to work together. We see each other at televised events, et cetera, and we celebrate together. We're never able to perform together. Well, because of this virus, none of us have contracts. Entertainment, live entertainment's dead. So I was able to call all my friends up and say, let's go put on the, this incredible show and let's bring it to people's backyards where they can drive into their car, turn into our radio station. I'll motivate them from the wire. You can shoot out of a cannon and you can do a double backflip on your motorcycle. And, and, and we can inspire these people during a time where it's very hard to be inspired. You know, there's something very attractive about your personality. By the way, uh, a book that, uh, have you ever read the book Blue Ocean Strategy or no? I have not. Okay, I think Blue Ocean Strategy is a great book for you because it's it's sold over four and a half million copies. Uh, it's it's about how to create a unique, how to disrupt an industry and do something that's never been done before. It gives you the exact formula in it, and the main story that the consultants and the author talk about is Circus uh, Circus So if you've never read oh, Blue uh, Ocean Strategy, it's a phenomenal book for somebody like you, since you're saying you want to reinvent the industry. But yeah, I got, I got a technical question for you. I'm curious to know what you're going to say about this one here. You know, sometimes when you're uh, uh, winning and for some, it comes in different levels, right? Oh, you start making more money than your mom and dad. It's like, oh, I'm making more money than my mom and, mom and dad. I'm, I mean, hey, mom, you don't tell me what to do. Hey, dad, you don't tell me what to do. Do you know your son is making a quarter million dollar income? And, and maybe sometimes you're uh, 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 running a business and you become the best in your office and sales, or you're running the best business, local community, or you're in sports and you start winning and you're getting a lot of accolades and people are telling how amazing you are. Here's a guy that no matter where you go, you said kids are touching you to see if you're real. You walked across a volcano, you know, Times Square, Chicago, Niagara Falls. How do you prevent yourself from being cocky? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I would tell you my wife does a great job at preventing me from being cocky. She always keeps me in check. Uh, but you know what? I was raised to always be humble and kind, no matter what, never forget where I came from. I, I was also raised in, in a world where, you know, I told my children all along, and my, my father used to always tell me, the person who's sweeping the floor might be running the company next time you meet him. And that's the reality. And I think that everybody deserves, everybody's created equally. All of us are on, an, on a level playing field and a level platform. We all have the same opportunities. And, and, and I think what keeps me humble is to continue to reach down to those people and say, look, I made it up here. Now it's your turn. If I can do it on a wire, then you can do it in your business, in your corporation. Uh, I don't care. I I've told my kids when I raised them, I don't care if you work at McDonald's, or if you work at, for the Pentagon, or if you're the president of the United States, you do it to the best of your ability. You work as hard as you possibly can, and you make your boss's job as easy as possible, and you will eventually have his job. And because of that, they are extremely confident in life, uh, not bold, not cocky, not arrogant, but extremely responsible. In fact, I couldn't be more proud of my 22-year-old Marine who's serving our country. He didn't have to do that. Dad has money. Dad could have sent him to college and done, he could have taken on businesses that I've started locally, and he could have done great 
great that way. But he chose on his own to serve our country for four years before he moved on to do that stuff. 19 year old in the army, I get goosebumps. Why are my children in the military? They were raised to respect our nation and uh, and they do so again out of choice. It was their decision. It wasn't though as though they didn't have any choice. It wasn't as though they didn't have other opportunity, but they literally said, you know what? We want to serve our nation. And, uh, and to me, uh, the most rewarding thing, a job opportunity uh, I've had in my life is raising children. And there's nothing more re- rewarding than seeing the fruits of what you've worked so hard on. Well, I got to tell you, man, my hat's off to you. Uh, for anybody that's watching this, if there's ever been a time where you want to read a book on fear, I mean, if there's ever been a time where you want to get good at controlling your emotions, your imagination, how to overcome fear, how to deal with anxiety and panic attacks, Today's the time. We're going to put the link below to uh, Nick's book that just came out. You'll be one of the first people that ever orders it. The link will be below. Facing Fear by Nick Wolenda with Don Yeager. Uh, Nick, I've had a blast uh, studying about your family. I've had a blast watching a bunch of your videos, which is fascinating. And I've really enjoyed talking to you. I, I, I felt more the depth of your character, your family's character, and I think it's something a lot of people can use as a source of inspiration. So having said that, thank you so much for making the time for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thanks so much for having me on. It was an honor. Appreciate you. What a great time to be studying this whole mental toughness and emotional toughness mindset, especially coming from somebody that walks on wires across, you know, Times Square or, you know, Niagara Falls or a volcano. Where do you have to go mentally to do that? I was fascinated by the interview. I'd be curious to know what you took away from it. Please comment below your thoughts. And if you want to watch more things having to do with the mindset of somebody that's able to compete at that level, I did an interview with Tim Grover, who was a trainer to Michael Jordan. He was in The Last Dance. He was a trainer to Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade and many others. If you've never watched this interview, I just want to prepare you. I think we counted 100 F-bombs he drops the entire interview. But he will give you certain way of thinking that got him to write this book called Relentless that most athletes have read. If you've never watched that interview before, click over here. And uh, if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.